I realize it's been about a month, but uh, this morning we continue on in the book of Genesis. And so if you would turn with me in your Bibles to, uh, to Genesis chapter 41. Uh, Genesis 41, we'll be picking up in verse 14, and uh, we'll be reading down through the end of the chapter. And this is a uh, section in the book of Genesis where we see Joseph now coming out of prison, coming before Pharaoh, coming to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh. We read uh, a month ago in the early part of chapter 41 about the dreams that Pharaoh had, and now Joseph comes and Pharaoh uh, tells his dreams to Joseph, and Joseph interprets them. And so we'll pick up reading in verse 14. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and hurriedly they brought him out of the dungeon, and when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, In my dream, behold, I was standing on the bank of the Nile, and behold, seven cows, fat and sleek, came up out of the Nile, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Lo, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such as I had never seen for ugliness in all the land of Egypt. And the lean and ugly cows ate up the first seven fat cows. Yet when they had devoured them, it could not be detected that they had devoured them, for they were just as ugly as before." Then I awoke, I saw also in my dream, and behold, seven ears full and good came up on a single stalk, and lo, seven ears withered, thin, and scorched by the east wind sprouted up after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. Then I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold, Seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt, and after them seven years of famine will come, and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of that subsequent famine, for it will be very severe. Now as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God, and God will quickly bring it about. Now let Pharaoh look for a wise, uh, a, a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Then let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it. Let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine, which will occur in the land of Egypt. 
so that the land will not perish during the famine. Now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it in Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put the gold necklace around his neck. He had him ride in his second chariot, and they proclaimed before him, Bow the knee. And he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh named Joseph Zaphanath-Paneah, and he gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, as his wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. Now Joseph was thirty years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. During the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and placed the food in the cities. He placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. Thus Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. Now before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. He named the second Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. When the seven years of plenty, which had been in the land of Egypt, came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said, then there was famine in all the lands. But in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. When the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe in all the earth. Now, as we consider this chapter this morning, or rather these uh, verses from 14 uh, down through the end of the chapter, we'll do so under, under four main headings. First, Joseph was humble. Joseph was humble. Second, God is in control. Third, God blessed Joseph. And fourth, Joseph fed the people. And for those who take notes, I'll run through those again. Uh, Joseph was humble. God is in control. God blessed Joseph. And Joseph fed the people. 
And so first of all, Joseph was humble, and that's what we see right at the beginning of our text. Now, where we had left off in the middle of December, we had seen that Joseph had successfully interpreted the the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer while in prison, and certainly uh, these things came to pass just as Joseph said they would. The cupbearer was restored and the baker was executed, but it had been uh, two years now. And Pharaoh then had had these two dreams that none of his magicians or wise men could interpret. And it was then at that point that the cupbearer remembered Joseph from his prison days and recommended Joseph to Pharaoh as someone who could interpret dreams. And as we see from verse 14, Pharaoh sends for Joseph and they bring Joseph out of the dungeon in a hurry and he gets a shave and a change of clothes and is brought to Pharaoh. We get the idea that this is an urgent matter, but at the same time that there were some matters of protocol that were important. You don't just bring a man from the filthy dungeon and bring him straight into the presence of Pharaoh. But when Joseph comes into Pharaoh's presence, Pharaoh puts the focus on Joseph there in verse 15. And he says to him, I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Now, if you put yourself in Joseph's position for a moment, that's a, that's a pretty high accolade. Having Pharaoh think that way about you could be quite a feather in your cap. It could be quite a bargaining chip to bring to the table. This might, in fact, be your get-out-of-jail-free card if you're Joseph. How many in Joseph's position might have simply said, yes, it's true, I can interpret dreams, I'm here to help. But Joseph would have... Nothing of the kind. Joseph gives all glory to God. And we see his words there in verse 16. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Or more literally, it could be translated, not to me. God will answer the peace of Pharaoh. Or perhaps, not to me. God will answer Pharaoh completely. In any case, the point is clear. Joseph takes no credit at all for himself in this matter. He takes no glory to himself. In other words, he contradicts Pharaoh's statement, doesn't he? Pharaoh says, I've heard about you, that you can interpret dreams. And Joseph, in effect, says, no. No, I can't. But God will give you an answer. And this approach to the interpretation of dreams was, in fact, the same approach that Joseph had taken earlier when he was back in prison, when he spoke to the cupbearer. He said to him back in chapter 40, verse 8, do not interpretations belong to God. Joseph understood the truth of the matter, that he knew who he was, that he was an instrument in the hand of God. He understood that there was nothing particularly special about him, that he had no innate ability in himself to interpret dreams. He had no acquired ability to interpret dreams. Interpretations belonged to God, and God had used him in the past to interpret dreams, and Joseph rightly believed that God would use him this time to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And so he gave all credit and all glory to God, and he took none to himself. And we must walk in his steps and imitate him in this regard. We must recognize ourselves for who we are. Now, if we, if we sit and think about ourselves, certainly we can think a lot of things that are bad that are true about ourselves. We can think about how we're sinners, how we fail, how 
uh, we are weak physically, how our memory fails and so forth, we could we can make a long list if we wanted to, but even if we think about positive things about ourselves, we could think, well, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. We're created in the image of God. We, uh, if we're Christians, we've been born again. We have our sins forgiven. We've died with Christ and been buried with him and been raised up with Christ, now seated with Christ in the heavenly places, and we've received the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. But lest we become conceited, did you notice the common thread in all of those good things that can be said about us? All of those good things are things that God has done, right? Those are not things that you have done. You didn't create yourself. You didn't cause yourself to be born. And neither, if you are a Christian, did you cause yourself to be born again. Just as it was God who created you, God who knit you together in your mother's womb and caused you to be born, so also if you are a Christian, it was God who caused you to be born again. And therefore Peter says, 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so the point is, is that all that you have that is good, everything that stems from the fact that God created you, or everything that stems from your redemption, are the gifts of God to you. God has given you your very being. If you're a Christian, God has given you your salvation in Christ. In short, every physical and spiritual blessing that you possess is given to you by God. And therefore, James says, James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. I believe our bulletin says that on the front. Normally, our bulletin uh, doesn't quite correspond with the sermon, but today it does. Paul would ask the question, 1 Corinthians 4.7, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So we have to recognize ourselves for who we are. We have to recognize that everything that is good is a gift. It's all from God. And this means that there is no ground at all for boasting. If you have any physical ability, the ability to to work or the ability to play sports or anything of that nature, it's the gift of God. If you have a great mind, Academic ability, the ability to to reason and think and understand, uh, great insight, it's the gift of God. If you have any godliness, if you've been sanctified to any degree, it's the gift of God. It is all his gift, his grace, and his blessing. And therefore, all glory must be given to God and to God alone. The uh, German hymn writer, Johann Jacob Schutz, put it well in his hymn when he said, let all who name Christ's holy name give God all praise and glory. Cast each false idol from his throne for Christ is Lord and Christ alone. To God all praise and glory. Joseph was humble and gave all glory to God. You and I need to do the same. When we are praised for whatever we may have done or whatever abilities or insights we may have, we need to be quick to give praise and glory to God. It's not in me, says Joseph. God will give Pharaoh the answer. 
Now, secondly, we see here that God is in control. We see this, uh, especially verse 25, verse 28, and verse 32. In verse 25, as Joseph is, is giving the interpretation, he says, God has told Pharaoh what he is about to do. Same idea comes through in verse 28. And then in verse 32, Joseph says, the matter is determined by God, and God will quickly bring it about. Now, taking all of those verses together, we see that God is not only the one who is telling, <clears throat> excuse me, of these coming events to Pharaoh, and, and in that we have certainly evidence that God knows the future and announces what is coming, but we also see that it is God who is the one who is controlling the future, that God is the one who is bringing these events to pass. He is the one, says Joseph, who will quickly bring it about. God knows the future. He announces it. But we must not think that because he announces it that he is merely a a passive bystander in regard to the future. Quite the contrary, he is controlling it, and he is accomplishing all of his holy will. And Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11, brings this out quite clearly where we read this, Remember this and be assured. Recall to mind, you transgressors, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly, I have spoken. Truly, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely, I will do it. And that's what we see here in Genesis, that God had planned the seven years of plenty, the seven years of famine. He had announced it beforehand. He was quickly bringing it to pass. And so he is the God who plans, the God who announces, the God who accomplishes. Now, here in this case, we see with Pharaoh, this announcement of God was was made by means of a dream to Pharaoh. It was interpreted by Joseph, and it was an act of mercy on the part of God. Now, we don't know exactly what God's purpose was in sending these seven years of famine on Egypt, whether this is simply the means of getting Jacob and all the rest of Joseph's family down to Egypt or whether this was sent for some other purpose in addition to that, perhaps to punish the nations for their idolatry and other sins, we don't know. We're not told explicitly why. But whatever God's wise reasons were for sending this famine, we also clearly see his grace in that he sent seven years of plenty before the seven years of famine. And we also see his grace in that he sent a forewarning of these things to a pagan king, to Pharaoh. Centuries later, Habakkuk's prayer would be, in wrath, remember mercy. Surely the Lord did that here. In the judgment that was coming for those seven years of famine, God nevertheless remembered mercy. He gave seven years of plenty beforehand, and he sent an advance notice of it so that they could store up the grain and be ready. We sang this morning from Psalm 107, Some rivers he changes to desert and waste, and water springs to arid ground. A land that is fruitful he turns into salt, for evil were those living there. Whether wrath or judgment, the Lord was 
which the Lord was carrying out here, nevertheless, in the midst of it, he was remembering mercy. He was giving them opportunity to prepare, opportunity for lives to be saved. And the same God who did these things here is doing the same things even still. He's still in control. He has already announced what the future holds. He's bringing about his holy will here on earth. And in the wrath to come, he has remembered mercy. Though the world may seem from our perspective to be out of control, it's not. Though evil men and women rage and rebel against the Lord, their evil is always on a leash held by the hand of God. And their wrath and raging actually praises God because unbeknownst to them, they are actually accomplishing God's will. And so we can allow that to be a comfort to us when the world seems to be spinning out of control. And we can praise God that though it may seem to be spinning out of control, it's actually not out of control. And if you belong to Christ, if you're a Christian, then whatever does happen is actually happening for your good. And this is true whether or not it feels like it, whether or not we understand it. Our God reigns, and he is victorious. And I love the way one pastor and evangelist from olden times put it quite simply. He said, Christ is risen, we are going to win. If you are in Christ, all things are working together for your good. We are more than conquerors through him. And similar to what we find here in Genesis 41, God has announced that judgment is coming, right? Here, we see that God announced that a seven-year famine was coming. But for us, God has announced that he will judge the world when Christ returns. And so we read in Psalm 98.9, He is coming to judge the earth, and he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Our Lord Jesus himself says in Matthew 25, 31 and following, that when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them one from another, the, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And so we are forewarned about the judgment that is coming. This is part of the Lord's plan. He is going to bring it to pass But he's announced it beforehand, just like he announced the seven-year famine here beforehand, so that we can get ready for it and make adequate preparations for the judgment that is to come. And so, how do we get ready? Well, we get ready by fleeing from the wrath that is to come. How do we do that? How do we flee? Well, we can't flee in the sense of outrunning or somehow getting away from God like a fugitive who escapes from justice. We can't do that. Rather, the only way to flee from the wrath to come is to, is to turn around, to stop running away from God and start running toward God. The way to be safe when the judgment comes is through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, or to use that language of Psalm 2, to kiss the Son, lest he be angry. This is why Jesus came was to save his people from their sins. The wrath of God is coming because of sin, but Jesus came to save us from our sins. And so God has warned us that that judgment is coming so that we might make preparation beforehand, 
And the way to make preparation is to make peace with the judge before he comes. Repent and believe. And therefore we read in John 3.18 that he who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Or again, John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Jesus came to save us from the wrath to come by dying on the cross and then by rising from the dead three days later. And all who come to Christ in faith and repentance will not perish in that final judgment, but will have eternal life because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. And if you have more questions about what it means, how to avoid this judgment that is coming, how to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus, you can talk to me after the service or you can talk to another Christian whom you know here. We would love to tell you more about how you too can be saved from the wrath that is coming. And so we see here that that God is in control, that he announces what the future holds and that he brings about his holy will on earth. And in wrath, he remembers mercy. And we can take comfort in this truth of God's sovereignty. And we should praise God because of his grace toward us. We deserve nothing good from his hand, but he has given to us his grace in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. So we see that that God is in control. And thirdly, from Genesis 41, we see that that God blessed Joseph. Now, on the one hand, there's, there's nothing new in that Despite all of his hardships all throughout his life, God has blessed Joseph continually, and we've, we've seen that. Uh, during his enslavement in, in Potiphar's house, God had, had blessed him and had made all that he had done to prosper under his hands. Even during his, his imprisonment, he was placed in charge of the other prisoners. We have seen God blessing Joseph again and again in adverse circumstances. And here we see, yet again, God blessing Joseph. And so, in light of these years of famine that were coming and the years of plenty which would precede them, Joseph had advised Pharaoh to set up an administrator who would uh, exact one-fifth of the produce of the land during those seven years and set it aside so that the land would not perish during the famine. And this seems like a good idea to Pharaoh and his advisors in the royal court. And Pharaoh picked Joseph. He says to him, can we find a man like this in whom there is a divine spirit? Since God has informed you of all this and no one is as discerning and as wise as you are, you shall be over my house and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne will I be greater than you. And so Pharaoh elevated Joseph to the second highest position in Egypt. And we see uh, some of the the accompaniments of that in verses 42 and 43. He gives uh, Joseph the signet ring, this sign of authority, so that now just as Pharaoh can put his seal on some official order, Joseph can do the same thing in Pharaoh's name. And we see that Joseph uh, gets these fine linens to wear and a golden necklace. He's riding in the second chariot, second to Pharaoh, and he is given a wife, the daughter of the priest of On, and so this is kind of a political marriage, his wife being the daughter of a priest, and priests being closely associated with the ruling class in Egypt. And so Joseph is, is elevated to the heights of Egyptian society immediately. He goes from being in prison to being second in command to Pharaoh all in a day. 
We see God's blessing upon Joseph. And we see this in Joseph's lips in the praise that he gives after his sons are born. In verse 51, when his firstborn Manasseh is born, he names him Manasseh, which means making to forget. And he praises God by saying, God has made me forget all my trouble and my father's household. And then when Ephraim, the secondborn, was born, he says, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, in in speaking as he does in those two verses, Joseph is very clear that his life has been hard. There are some things that he wants to forget. There are some things that, by the grace of God, he feels that he's been able to get to forget his, his trouble and all his father's household. Now, part of his trouble came directly from his father's household, from his brothers who had those murderous intentions toward him, who cruelly sold him into slavery. But it is clear, even from Joseph's words, that his forgetting is one that needs to be qualified. Right? Because sometimes when we forget things, or when someone can be said to forget things, we forget them in an absolute sense, in the sense of, I have no memory of that at all. And so this is the kind of forgetting that happens when someone says to you, hey, do you remember that time we went to this place and we had really good crab cakes there? And your mind is blank, and you're like, no, I, I, don't, I don't remember that at all. And they pull out and show you the picture, and like, huh, I, I guess I must have been there. But, but it's completely erased from your memory. And if you've never had that happen to you, wait, wait till you get a little older, and it, it may start happening to you. And, but that's, that's one kind of forgetting. But it's very clear that that is not the kind of forgetting that Joseph is talking about here. The very fact that he makes mention of his trouble and that he makes mention of his father's household means that he hasn't forgotten it. Absolutely. He hasn't forgotten it in the sense of having no memory of it at all. His forgetfulness is forgetfulness in the sense of being able to move on. And that's helpful. That's helpful. Put yourself in his position for a moment. He had endured one bad turn after another. He suffered the evils of his brothers, been sold into slavery, been falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, been imprisoned on account of that. And then, even after he was able to interpret the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer, he still had to spend two more years in prison because the cupbearer wouldn't plead his case before Pharaoh. Joseph had been the victim of much that was wicked. And yet now his situation was changed. He's away from his brothers. He's out of slavery, out of prison. He's been elevated to be second to Pharaoh. He has a wife. He has a son. Joseph can look back on all of this in the past, and he could see God's hand in bringing him forward. And through it all, he can say, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. He knows that the trouble and his father's household are back there. He has not lost cognitive knowledge of them, but he's been able to put it past him. He's been able to turn the page, been able to move on, and now he's able to see the blessings of God despite all that he has been through in the past. And we see this also with regard to the birth of his second son. He names him Ephraim. Fruitfulness 
for God had made him fruitful in the land of his affliction. He knew the affliction had happened, but again, he'd been able to turn the page and move on and see the grace of God despite the affliction. Now, none of us, I'm sure, have had experiences exactly like Joseph's, but we've all passed through difficulty, some of us more than others. And I know that sometimes the scars of those difficulties can be quite deep and quite painful, and I'm in no way proposing any quick fix for those deep wounds. I think that quick fixes can actually cause more damage because they get our hopes up and they don't actually take care of the problem. But what I would draw your attention to from the experience of Joseph as it is brought forward in Genesis 41 is that healing is possible. It's possible. Healing is also desirable. And healing is the gift of God. Healing is possible. Healing is desirable. And healing is the gift of God. As bad and as hurtful as the past may be, it's possible to turn the page and to make progress past the pain. Joseph did, by the grace of God, and notice here that that is desirable. Joseph had no desire to be stuck in the pain of the past, and when he named his son Manasseh, saying, God has made me forget all of my trouble and all of my father's household, he's not looking back longingly, saying, I wish I could remember. He's he's thankful that God has allowed him to turn the page and to move forward in life. And it's quite plain also that God was the one who had done it. God was the one who had made him forget. And ultimately, it was not Joseph, but it was God who had turned the page on the painful memories of the past. And I know some of the scars that some of you have, but I certainly don't know all of the scars that all of you have. But whatever your situation may be, Whatever the hurt, whatever the pain, whether it be the results of your own sins or the results of the sins of others committed against you, or whether it may be simply the circumstances of life in a fallen world that have come your way under the providential hand of God, whatever it may be, I want you to know that there is hope and I want you to know that there is healing in the grace of God. And there is hope and healing in the grace of God, even when our earthly circumstances do not change so drastically as Joseph's did. Joseph's case is certainly an extreme case, a kind of rags to riches in a day kind of, kind of case. Sometimes, sometimes you, you read those, those fictional stories, well, this one was real, but often it, it doesn't work that way. Often God does not work in this way. And As we know, sometimes our life circumstances do change, somewhat for the better, though, even if it's not a rags-to-riches type of change. And we can and should praise God when circumstances change and improve in that way. But sometimes, and let's be honest about this, sometimes earthly circumstances may not change too much. In other words, you might have had a hurtful experience a hurtful life circumstance and you move forward in time but the circumstance doesn't change too much. Sometimes that happens too. And in such cases, we may not be able to forget our trouble in the same way that that Joseph did. It's hard 
to forget your trouble when you're actually still living in the trouble as your daily reality. But even then, even when the circumstances don't change much, I want you to know that even then there's hope and healing in the grace of God. Even when earthly circumstances remain much the same, the grace of God can strengthen us in the midst of those circumstances as we cling to the hope of the promise that one day God will make all things new. That one day we will actually be able to turn the page and forget. The promise is held out to us that at Christ's return, in the consummation of all things, God will dwell with us, Revelation 21, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain for the first things have passed away. And indeed, we find the promise in Isaiah 65, 17. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind. And so when that great day comes, Christ returns and gathers his people to himself, all who are in Christ will be able to turn the page on the past and will be able to forget the former things and to rejoice in God with great joy, joy unspeakable on that day. And in the meantime, we have to remember that the trials that we face are the proving ground for us, so to speak. If it is the discipline of God for our sin, which he does, as we find in Hebrews 12, discipline us for our sins. If it's the discipline of God, then let us submit to it, let us learn from it, and let us humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. If our trials are on account of the sins of others against us, then let us bear up under it, remembering those words that we read together this morning from 1 Peter chapter 2. This finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor in uh, this finds favor with God. And so if we think of, of Joseph here, Joseph bore up under unjust sufferings for years. It was 13 years from the time he was 17 and sold into slavery until he stood before Pharaoh. But he bore up under unjust sufferings. And it finds favor with God when we patiently bear up under unjust sufferings. The trials that we face, as James tells us in James 1, uh, produce endurance. And endurance has its perfect result by making us mature and complete. And therefore, we can rejoice even in our troubles because of what the troubles accomplish for us as they cause us to lean more on the Lord and as they conform us to the image of Christ by the working of the Holy Spirit within us. And this brings us then to our fourth point, which is that Joseph fed the people. And this is obvious. Joseph made the adequate preparations during the years of plenty so that when the famine came, there was grain to be had in Egypt. We find in verse 55 that when Egypt was famished, they cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And he responded by saying, go to Joseph and whatever he says to you, you shall do. And of course, Joseph opened the storehouses of grain and sold to the Egyptians and not only to them, for we find that the famine was severe in the other countries as well, and the people from all the world were coming to Egypt to buy from Joseph as well. 
Now, we've already considered in this series of sermons related to Joseph how Joseph foreshadows our Lord Jesus Christ in some ways. We noted how in Acts chapter 7, Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin demonstrated that uh, both Joseph and Moses were types of Christ. They were forerunners of Christ in that, on the one hand, they were deliverers of the nation, but on the other hand, rejected by the nation. You see that in Joseph being rejected by his brothers, yet ultimately uh, saving their lives by means of grain. And we see it in Moses also, on the one hand, uh, being rejected by the nation multiple times if you track through the wilderness history, and uh, yet ultimately he's the one who led the people out of Egypt. And so there are some particular items here in these final verses of Genesis 41 that are of interest, I think, in respect to to Joseph pointing us forward to Christ. Uh, First, notice what Pharaoh says to the people. He says, go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. Pharaoh, in other words, knew that this matter was safe in Joseph's hand. He knew that Joseph was capable. Joseph was competent. Joseph could be depended upon. Whatever Joseph said to do would be trustworthy and good. And those words have a certain ring about them, I think, that should make us think ahead to our Lord Jesus Christ. Just think of, think of John chapter 2, that wedding, Cana of Galilee. Mary, the mother of our Lord, was there, and she said to the servants on that occasion, she said, whatever he says to you, do it. Mary knew that Jesus was capable, that he was competent, that he could be depended upon, and that whatever he said would be trustworthy, true, and good. And think likewise of the, the transfiguration. The voice of God the Father came out of the cloud and testified of Jesus, saying, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Now, in making those connections between Pharaoh's words concerning Joseph and uh, the words of God the Father at the transfiguration and the words of, of Mary, I'm not suggesting that there is any literary dependence any textual dependence, as if Mary at the wedding in Cana was thinking, oh yeah, I want to use a similar expression here to what Pharaoh said about Joseph, as I'm trying to tell these servants about Jesus and instructing them to listen to Jesus. I'm not not suggesting anything of the kind. But what I am saying is that when we hear Pharaoh put such confidence in Joseph that he basically gives Joseph a blank check to handle the situation and tells the people to trust him and obey him, we ought to be thinking ahead to the one who is ultimately trustworthy and the one whom we should ultimately yield our obedience to. When you see the faithfulness and the trustworthiness of Joseph here, we need to remember that all of his good qualities, and there are many, all of his good qualities are merely shadows compared to our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever he says to you in his holy word, do it. He is God's beloved son. Listen to him. And we notice also here that Joseph fed Egypt and the men of other nations who came to Egypt. People from all the earth were coming to buy grain from Joseph. And he met their needs. He fed them and they were satisfied. And even so, it is with Christ. It was prophesied In Isaiah 55, 1 and 2, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money and without cost, 
Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. And this is exactly what we find in the gospel, that Jesus feeds all who come to him. He feeds them. He satisfies their needs with himself, the bread of life. And isn't that exactly what we heard this morning uh, from our brother Tom in that reading from John chapter 6, where Jesus says, Do not work for the bread which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Jesus is ultimately the one who is the supplier of bread, and he himself is the bread. He supplies the bread in that he gave his life for us on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven and we could be at peace with God. And so, friend, if you are hungry, hungry for righteousness that you lack, hungry for a new life because the one that you have is in shambles and wrecked by sin and stands under the wrath of God, if you're hungry for fellowship with the God who made you, turn to Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and believe in him. He is the bread of life He satisfies the famished souls. He died for sinners like you and me and rose again the third day from the dead so that all who trust in him may have eternal life. And just as the famine drove the Egyptians and the surrounding nations to Joseph, allow the spiritual famine of your heart, the spiritual neediness that you feel within yourself to drive you to Christ. Because just as Joseph satisfied those who came to him, By selling them grain, so you too will be satisfied when you come to Christ, who is himself the bread of life. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for your word, for its truth. We pray that we would come to Christ, that we would be satisfied with him. We praise you, Father, that indeed he is the bread of life, who came down out of heaven from you and gives life to the world. We pray that we would ever partake of him and ever rejoice in him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.